Welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. You should know that this episode was also recorded in video and can be watched on our website at theundrapedartist.com and also on YouTube at the Undraped Artist Podcast. Also, check out our show notes to learn more about today's guest. I hope you enjoy the show. Christina Mittermeier, welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. I am so honored to be here. Thank you, Jeff. Oh, it's my honor. I am a huge fan of your work. I mean, the things that you're doing with conservation and art is is mind-blowing and, um, and noble. It's awesome what you're doing. Um, I want to know, <laughs> oh, I've got you. so many questions, because obviously this is a, mostly a painting podcast, as you probably know but we're both visual artists. So I think obviously there's a relationship there and I'll tell the audience what was real fun when you, you were one of the few people who actually centered yourself on the screen. So I can tell you're used to looking through a viewfinder and, and composing <laughs> photos. <laughs> I often have to tell my guests to center themselves. Um, but my first question is how did you get into this field of um, conservation and photography? You know, there was, um there was of course a genesis to the whole thing and i don't remember a single time in my life ever since i was a kid that i was not enthralled by nature i've always loved animals and wildlife and nature and i feel like i've always had this almost instinctual knowledge that we need to protect nature to survive on planet earth so i've always been a little baffled that people don't get that that most people seem to be you know completely oblivious to the fact that we cannot survive separate from what our planet can provide and i always felt a need to to talk, to talk to other people about it to scream it from the top of roofs you know that we need animals uh wild creatures we need a diversity of life on this planet in order to survive so that's how i became a conservationist and i thought that i was going to be a scientist first so i went to university and became a marine biologist and then i started publishing the scientific literature and i was just bored because I think at my core, Jeff, I've always been an artist. Uh, ever since I was a little girl, I was musical. I loved coloring, painting, writing. Uh, but it was cameras that I picked up as the tool. You know, it, it felt very expeditious. It felt really easy to make photographs. Yeah. So that's how it all happened. So as a little kid, were you one of those kids that was just going around looking for animals and, and catching animals and having lots of pets? I mean, what were you like? <laughs> Well, I, I grew up in Mexico City until I was 10 years old, so there were not a lot of animals. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> but then I was very lucky because uh, we moved to a, a suburb a city of Mexico City called Cuernavaca, which is beautiful. And it's uh, high up in the mountains and has tremendous amount of wildlife and uh, plants. Uh, it's uh, it's known as the Everspring City, if mm -hmm. you ever get a chance to go. The temperature is between 74 and 80 degrees every day of the year. Oh my it, gosh. My mother said that if you throw away the broomstick, it will bloom again. It's beautiful. So I did, I did grow up uh, outdoors uh, playing in the garden. My mother had chickens and peacocks and the neighbor had pigs and cows. I mean, I, I grew up with animals. Wow. So you said you majored in, I think it was biology, correct? 
Actually, it, it wasn't biology. It was uh, I became a biochemical engineer. Okay. That's what my dad thought was productive, and it was uh, with us. I specialized on fisheries. I thought that by being a fisheries biologist, I would get a chance to be close to dolphins and whales, and that was not the case. Okay. So uh, did you find that when you were in school that it just wasn't fulfilling or did you just feel like it didn't really fulfill you that creative itch? You know, I think that like most people, um, I had never really honestly given a second thought to what we call industrial fishing. Like we don't know how it really happens. Right. But that's what I learned in university. And, and you pretty soon realize that it's a very corporate, greedy, wasteful, disrespectful activity. Mm. It's ruled by a concept called the maximum sustainable yield. And what that is, is how many fish can you extract from the ocean before you cause the population to collapse? So oh. it's um, a mindset. Oh, I know. And it's still done that way. So they're just riding the it's line. They're just trying to really... ride the line, like right at the edge, right before it collapses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's in their best interest to not make the population collapse because then they lose their business. Right. But writing that line, that's the bottom line. And, and sometimes they get it wrong. I don't know if you remember in the 1990s, Canada got it wrong and they caused the collapse of, of what Atlantic cod, which used to be the largest fishery on the planet, the most abundant fish. Mm. And they caused it to almost go extinct. So I, I really had a conflict of morals with this idea of the maximum sustainable yield because it didn't really tell you about the role that fish play in the ecosystem, the relationship that they have to other species, to the atmosphere, to the ecology of our planet. And uh, I just thought it was really stupid. Yeah, I, <laughs> I agree with you. So how did you make that transition <laughs> to working in, for fisheries? Um, to getting into photography and, and how did you find so much success? And I, I don't want you to be humble here. I want you to be completely honest with me because you won a ton of awards and stuff. Well, so tell me just a little bit about that path because that's a huge step from scientist to artist. Well, it took a long time, Jeff. I mean, I was a fisheries biologist when I was 21 years old. Uh, at the time in Mexico, it was very, very difficult to find a job in fisheries for a woman in general. So I went to work for conservation instead. And like um, most conservation work, it's done through nonprofit, so very poorly paid. So I could barely make a living. Uh, and I was very lucky because I met a very famous Mexican wildlife photographer. And he was the first one that actually showed me what photography could do in terms of, you know, not just showing us the, the world through photographs, but sparking the right conversations. Um, so he didn't speak English very well. He asked me to help him with a book that he was preparing. And it was his photographs, and I did a lot of the writing and the translating. But it was the day that we launched that book. Uh, it was at the Mexican Embassy in Washington, D.C. And I noticed that people were looking at the pages and browsing through the book. They were not reading the text. They were looking at the pictures. Mm. And then they were having conversations about the photographs. They were asking questions. So it dawned on me that people feel very intimidated by science. It's a language that not all of, all, not all of us speak. So you can feel very silly and stupid if you don't understand what people are trying to tell you. But when it comes to photographs, 
we all are experts at visual communication. We are visual creatures, so people feel comfortable. And they ask things like, oh, tell me more. Is, are you, were you scared uh, to get in the water with a shark? Or was it dangerous? Or were the mosquitoes bothersome? I mean, all these more human questions that are the beginning of the conversation. And I thought, ah, that's interesting. So that's how I decided to start a journey in photography. And it took a long time. So tell me a little bit about that journey. I mean, obviously, if it took a long time, there's a lot to tell. But I mean, can you give me a fairly concise um, path? Yeah, I mean, the technical aspects of photography, I think, like any art form can be really complex. Yeah. And it, it was, um, it, I think it's one of the barriers for people to really enter into photography as an art form, because it's easy to set the camera to automatic and just shoot whatever the camera decides. But in order to make artistic statements, you really need to understand how the camera works. And it took me a while. So the the relationship between the shutter speed, between uh, the f-stop, which is what you the depth of field, and between the ISO, right? Those are your three parameters when you're working as a photographer. And that's what creates the moodiness in the light. And that's what makes a subject pop up. That's what composition, uh, you know, your tools for composition are all through this play on light. So it took me a long time. And I realized that photography is kind of like learning another language. Because first you learn how to say a few words and then you start getting a little bit successful with your photographs. And I remember the first time I made a photograph that I actually thought through the whole process and then the image came up and I was like, oh, <laughs> I did it. But if you stick with it long enough and you learn to use it well, pretty soon you, you can write poetry with your camera. You really make beautiful artistic statements. And that's the part that took me a long time. Hmm. So what was your first success in as a career? When did you start to realize you could actually make a living doing this? <laughs> like so many photographers, and I'm going to say so many artists, because I'm sure it's true for painters as well. You start this by having a complete second job. That's what's your art. Right. And so I did that for a long time. I, in order to be able to buy the equipment, which of course includes all sorts of very expensive paraphernalia, um, I had to make my cameras work for me. So I started a business when I was a, I was a mother. I had young children at home, but I started taking portraits of the people that lived in my neighborhood. And these were family portraits for Christmas cards. And they were, um, I don't know, graduation portraits and even weddings. Because that way I could charge money for my work and pay for more equipment and pay for airplane tickets to go to the places that I wanted to go. And I remember, you know, having a conversation with somebody who asked me if I was a professional photographer. And I was a little surprised because the definition of a professional photographer is somebody that makes their living from photography. And so I, I remember thinking, oh, well, I do make my living from photography. Yeah. <laughs> Just not the kind that I want to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, I remember it. 1996 was the year when I thought, oh, I'm a, I'm a professional photographer. I make a living. Okay. So you say a long time, but you've, you've been at this for 27 years, I guess now. So, uh, so you've you're also had, me, Jeff, yeah. what's that? <laughs> yeah, but you're not that old. I mean, so, so you've had some success, I would say relatively early in your life. So this long time might've been 10, uh, you 10 are... 12 years. 
But I'm, I'm not I'm not asking for your yeah. age, although it's on Wikipedia. Anyone can look it up. <laughs> so we already know. it. OK, so I'll, so I'll tell you what happened. OK, I, I you know, back in the 1990s, um, it, it, it was not very clear to me, you know, what kind of photography I wanted to do. Yeah, because the the option was these enormous category called nature photography and nature photographers, you know, were mostly white affluent men, Americans and Canadians, and would get together in these conferences. And they were, a lot of them were retired doctors and lawyers who, you know, who could afford the equipment and could afford to go to Africa. And the conversations that were, they were having to me were incredibly boring. You know, they were very into the filters and the tripods and that kind of thing. And what I wanted to know is, you know, what can we do with our photography that, that is more than publishing in a magazine or doing a photo exhibit? Can we make our photographs work to protect the places where we photograph? And they were not interested in having that conversation with me. So, you know, mm. as a young Mexican woman, I was told to shut up and sit down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I, it was difficult to be a nature photographer. It's, um, it's a discipline that requires a lot of time, a lot of money. And, you know, as a mother of young children, I just couldn't disappear for weeks on end to go photograph wildlife. So instead, I, you know, I decided that staying in the villages and making photographs of the people that lived in these places where biodiversity is still so rich uh, would be a good thing for me to to do in the meantime. And that took me down a rabbit hole of 20 years of photographing indigenous communities. And I was probably one of the very few nature photographers doing that. Mm. So I think the first inkling of my success was to choose something that nobody else was doing. Because I was always surprised all these nature photographers following each other and they travel in groups and they all photograph the same thing. And, you know, how can that be interesting? Yeah. You know, I had a couple thoughts. One is that, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I learned about you from my son. And I find it ironic that these these white male photographers were telling you to shut up. And, and uh, 30 years later, you have a white male who is like pretty much worshiping the ground you walk on. <laughs> so good for you for turning the tables there. <laughs> but also you said one thing. Um, you said that when you were doing this photography of your friends and family and various other portrait type jobs, um, that you would use that money to travel in order to take pictures that you wanted. So correct me if I'm wrong, but are you saying that you didn't wait for the job to pay for you to do the photography you wanted to do, but you funded it yourself? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Um, I also, because I wanted my images to work for conservation, I started volunteering for conservation groups uh, that worked in, in the places where I was photographing. And I knew that they did the images. So I would, uh, you know, donate my images and donate my time and take pictures, you know, that are still being used by these conservation groups. And it was surprising because over time I found myself, you know, in in the in the salary budget of these organizations, they would actually start to put money away to send me on these missions. And that, that was a Amazing. game changer. Uh, so when young photographers ask me, you know, how do I get started? Well, go and go and find your passion first and volunteer and hone your skills. And pretty soon you'll find that people want to pay you. That's amazing. So throughout this process, I understand that you started about 400 nonprofits. 
maybe not quite that many, but a bunch. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about that. How, well, first of all, tell me what they are. I think there's actually just three. I'm kidding, but but just three. I'm going to put that in quotes, just three. But um, tell me about that. How do you balance <laughs> these obviously time-consuming projects of, of, of managing nonprofits with your creative life? And first of all, tell me what these are. It's, tell it's us what these nonprofits are, for starters. It's a, it's a fun question, uh, Jeff. I don't think anybody has ever asked me that. The reason I started nonprofits is because the for-profit world is not interested in saving the planet, or at least it wasn't back then. So the expectation is that nonprofit organizations, which are non-governmental organizations that function through donations and philanthropy, will do the heavy lifting or of saving the planet. And so I've started two, actually, only. Uh, and I served in the board of a whole bunch of other ones. But the two that I started, uh, the first one was the International League of Conservation Photographers, which I started in 2005. And that organization was my answer to a bunch of those white men that were not interested in using images to save the planet. Because I knew that there were a whole bunch of photographers, actually some of my favorite and most iconic photographers, that were doing this work. And they didn't have a name for it, and they didn't have a platform to unify their voices, and they didn't have a way to raise money for their work. So the ILCP, as it's known, was born um, to congregate all of those photographers under one roof and, and give value to their work. And the most important thing about the International League of Conservation Photographers is that when I was creating it, I, you know, with my science background, I felt like it was important to define what conservation photography was. And so I wrote a scientific paper, a peer review paper that was published in the International Journal of Wilderness, defining how conservation photography was different from nature photography. And today, I think there's thousands uh, of photographers that call themselves conservation photographers and that have picked up this discipline of using their imagery to try to make the planet a better place. So that was organization number one. Okay, before you go to number two, I have I a question noticed. about that. Uh -huh. What is that definition? Mm -hmm. yeah. What is the difference between a nature photographer and a conservation photographer? Well, let me, let me give you an example. When I was going to those nature photography conferences way back when, um, there were all sorts of photographers there. And I remember an older lady, she must have been in her 80s, and she was taking pictures of flowers in flower pots in her garden. And that was her art. And of course, it's very, very valid of nature photography. But it was not, you know, it was nothing more than just that. At the time, there was a photographer. His name is Michael Nichols, and he was one of National Geographic's most iconic photographers. And Nick, as he is called, had walked 2,000 miles from the highlands of Cameroon all the way to the coast of Gabon, following you know, forest trails made by wild elephants mm. and photographing the whole journey to document a place on the planet that had never been touched by humans before. And then he took his photographs and he showed them to the president of the country, uh, President Bongo of Gabon. And the president was so surprised. He had no idea that his country harbored such beauty and such diversity. You're so together kidding. they ended up creating 13 new national parks. And I thought, well, that is not just nature photography, right? That's photography with a very distinct purpose. Um, wow. And it was that purpose, really, that was the, the distinguishing factor. And there were many other photographers doing the same. So what that was the win. kind of photographer I wanted to be. 
Yeah, what a win mm -hmm. for him. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. Okay, so what's the yeah. second what's the second one that you started, the second nonprofit? So the recognition that photographers can play a huge diplomacy role in informing the conservation of our planet. I then started looking back at my roots as a as an ocean very passionate person as a marine biologist. And I wanted to go back to, you know, asking the question, how do we save the ocean? At the time, I was already working for National Geographic and I had met Paul Nicklin, who's my second husband. And Paul is also one of the most iconic photographers uh, that has ever worked for National Geographic. And he too is a marine biologist. So the two of us were working together, telling stories about the ocean for National Geographic magazine. And we were frustrated because you know, to publish stories in National Geographic is probably, it's it's the Everest for more photograph for most right, photographers, right? right? It's like the NFL of, of photography. And once you've made it there, you've kind of like had it, have it made. It's great. But we didn't feel that publishing those stories was actually creating a lot of change. Right. I have noticed that in order for those stories to really create change, you need to find local champions that can use those stories to move the needle. And so we decided to leave National Geographic at the peak of our careers and to start the second nonprofit, which is called Sea Legacy. And Sea Legacy, um, I like to think about it as the marketing, communications, and education agency for the ocean. Okay, you're going to have to give us more than that because that that just went right over my head. <laughs> So what is it? Tell, tell yes. me like I'm a complete idiot. What exactly does it do from day to day? <laughs> Think about the ocean for a second. It is the largest ecosystem on our planet. It covers 72% of the surface of planet Earth. So it really should be called planet ocean, right? Right. But we know so little about it. And as terrestrial creatures, we don't feel like we have a dependence on these other ecosystem at all. Um, if you have a business, if you are a you know, corporation, you know that you need to make a very significant investment in communications and marketing to move your product. And I thought if we really want to move uh, the interest of humanity in protecting the ocean, we need a communications and marketing agency, somebody that goes and tells the story, somebody who shines a light on you know, how the ocean influences our lives every day, how every second breath that we take is actually born in, in the sea, exhaled by the ocean. And how creatures mm -hmm. like whales are instrumental in our fight against climate change. People don't know these things. So, um, you know, we figured that we could be that communications marketing agency. Okay, so you're earning money so that you can make pictures and write articles and distribute them throughout the world in order to inform people of how important the oceans are to preserve started like that you know it was also the beginning of social media and for mm -hmm. the first time you know paul has seven million followers i almost have two million followers so national geographic at the time had 11 million subscribers and we figure you know we don't need the magazine to tell these stories we can tell them directly to our audience so okay. we started publishing our stories uh, in social media but pretty soon I realized that in the United States alone, there's 5,000 conservation organizations dedicated to the ocean. And the one thing that they all have in common is that they don't have a budget for communications. So now we have become a service provider for these other conservation groups. Oh. So we raise money to go out and do the expensive work that's chartering boats and diving and all that stuff. 
we bring back all those videos and photography and we give them to our partner organizations to talk about their work. Okay. Yeah, that's much more complex than I ever would have imagined. That's incredible. <laughs> so, uh, so is that one it's of fun. You, you do you do a lot of indigenous people, but you do that the ocean seems to be one of your I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of your main interests. If you could choose among all of your interests, what are your favorites? But the good news is I don't have to choose. I can actually, I get to do it all. Um, what's your son's name? His name's Chase Hine. Chase, well, Chase needs to know that, you know, he will have many passions throughout his life. And, and yes, it is true that for me, indigenous people and spending time in these remote communities, learning from their way of life as an educational tool for us to learn how to live in better harmony with our planet, it's one of my passions, but the other one is photography and the other one is uh, the ocean and underwater photography. And then one day it all clicked together. And I realized that there's three and a half billion people on planet earth that depend on healthy marine mm. resources for their livelihood. The ocean creates a $3 trillion economy around the planet. And I started thinking, you know, is there a story to be told about the indigenous and coastal communities around the world? that live next to the ocean um, and to tell the story from the perspective of the sea. So that's what I'm doing. Wow. Now. Um, I'm probably one of the few photographers that's documenting indigenous communities from the ocean perspective. Oh, that's brilliant how you rolled that all together instead of keeping them separate. That really is brilliant. So, okay. So let's get, let's talk about your last, the last um, nonprofit that you did. And this one I was a little confused about. I, I think it's called only one. Is that correct? Uh, only one. Yeah, only one was born. It's um, Sea Legacy has a lot of followers, and we thought that signing petitions would be a good way for uh, for us to move the needle. So we paid to build a petition platform that we called Only One. And, uh, you know, it's just a place where people can sign their email and you know, then you can give those emails to governments. But I pretty soon realized that most governments don't really care about petitions. You know, they mm. care about what I call ocean diplomacy. Um, as a photographer, I get invited to meet with the president and come and talk to the minister. You're and kidding I can me. bring that message directly. So, wow. oh, my God, it's it's brilliant That's to incredible. be a photographer. That's incredible. You must be pinching so, yourself so, yeah. sometimes. I, I do. And so I, the thing I realized is that creating a technology platform to gather email signatures is incredibly expensive. So we couldn't afford um, only one anymore. So C Legacy basically is, you know, we don't have that feature anymore. And uh, we're back to our roots of doing storytelling and ocean diplomacy. Okay. We'll be right back after this short testimonial by one of my online mentorship students. If you're interested in learning more about how you could study with me, either online or in person, Check out HeinAtelier.com. That's H-E-I-N-A-T-E-L-I-E-R.com. I've been doing Jeff's online mentorship program for about a year now, and it is awesome. Everything is online, super streamlined. If you can be there, I mean, you have the ability to talk to him once a week, and he can review your work and help you. If you can't be there, it's pre-recorded. You can go back. And even rewatch things if you miss something during class or couldn't be there. 
So the online portion of it is almost better than real life because you can always go back to it, which is awesome. The demos are recorded. It's just like all available whenever you need it. And I'm a stay-at-home mom of four and my time is limited and it's also very interrupted. And so to be able to go back has been clutch for me. And you get to work with Jeff Hine, who's awesome. He's tough. The assignments are simple, but difficult. And they're difficult to make us all better. And he's able to give us these assignments, coach us through it, help us stay excited to progress. And so it's just been a great experience. I am so grateful that he has been willing to take time away from his own art to offer all of us to have it. So if you're thinking about doing it, it's amazing. Welcome back to the show. So I want to hear about some of your adventures because one of the wonderful things about your career that's very different than mine is I don't get out of the studio much, but your whole life is really about being in the place and meeting the people and, and swimming with the sharks, as you put it. And so maybe you could just highlight some of your um, favorite experiences. I'll tell you, I'm always very excited about whatever project I'm currently working on. And right now I, I have the enormous privilege of being able to go back to my native Mexico to work on a couple of very important projects. You know, I mean, I don't know if you've heard about uh, the climate change and biodiversity. They both have these conventions. They're called the Conference of the Parties. They meet once a year. And uh, the Conference of the Parties for Biodiversity just happened in Montreal. And the mandate that the nations of the world have agreed to is to protect 30% of the ocean by 2030. So we have a lot of work to do. And part of the work that Sea Legacy does is explain, you know, how do we get to 30%? At the moment, only 8% of the ocean is protected, and very little of that is highly and fully protected. So that means that you have a protected area out at sea somewhere, but all sorts of things are allowed. You can go fishing, you can do mining, you can do oil exploration. So how is that protection? Mm -hmm. So I just came back from an incredibly beautiful national park. It's a marine protected area created by Mexico. It's the largest national park in North America. It's 150,000 square kilometers out in the middle of the ocean in the Pacific. And it is highly and fully protected. That means that no industrial activity is allowed. The only things that are allowed are dive boats that come with a you know, handful of divers and science. And so we spent three weeks diving in this park. The name is, um, it needs better marketing and branding. It's called Riyajigedo, which is so difficult for most people to pronounce. Yeah. But the place is magical. Uh, so I spent three weeks diving with enormous sharks and enormous manta rays and huge tunas. Like I've never seen fish so big. Because when you protect something fully, animals get really big. But it's not just the animals. It's also the, the large ecological processes, like the upwellings that bring nutrients from the bottom of the ocean. And the storms are huge. And the wind is big. And that's exactly what we need if we want uh, to use the ocean as a tool to draw carbon from the atmosphere. We need all that wildlife uh, interacting with the ocean ecology to decarbonize. 
And so that's the story that we're telling, uh, how keeping the industrial fishing fleet outside of the boundaries of the park allows biodiversity to come back. So how, this is, okay, forgive my ignorance, but I mean, my understanding is that there are, there are like killer whales that migrate all the way from the North Pole all the way to tropical waters, and there are sharks that migrate all the way across the ocean. So 150 square kilometers is kind of small, considering the vast oceans in the world. How do these fish stay there and to grow big? I mean, why don't they just swim right out of the border and mix with all the other animals? Is that a ridiculous question? Chip, this is one of the <laughs> smartest. No, this is one of the smartest questions anybody has ever asked. Oh, You're good. Absolutely <laughs> right. So scientists know that animals will not stay within the boundaries of a marine protected area. They will eventually leave, move and migrate. So Sea Legacy has been working with governments of several countries to create the first interconnected network of marine protected areas. Panama was the first country that expanded its marine protections, and then it was followed by Costa Rica, Ecuador, and Colombia uh, to create an enormous national, you know, series. it's a series of marine protected areas. So if you imagine the Galapagos, now it's so big that it touches Cocos Island in Costa Rica, and Cocos mm -hmm. Island is connected to Malpelo and to Coiba. And now Mexico wants Revilla Gijedo to be a connected piece of the puzzle as well. Because in the past, animals would move out of the park and guess who was waiting for them just outside the border? Yeah, the fishermen and stuff. The industrial yeah. fishing fleet. Right. Yeah, that's right. So now these these massive migratory, you know, populations of fish and whales and sea turtles have safe passage along their migration routes, at least on this part of the Pacific. Now we're trying to inspire other places to create their own networks of they're called swimways it's a nice name swimway so we're we're working on a swimway between the west coast of australia indonesia and timor-leste and i have a feeling that other countries will start talking about this as well wow so is it possible to create enough of a pathway that you can keep yeah. an ink this ecosystem separate from those that are being fished and so on so a couple of things that are really interesting about that question is when you have a highly and fully protected area where the fish are not being industrially harvested all of a sudden the fish get really big and what happens when you have a big fish that's more mature and you know a healthier individual is that they produce bigger and healthier eggs as well. Oh. So all of a sudden you have more fish, more little fish, you know, and the populations really grow and recover very quickly. And they don't stay in the boundaries of the park. You know, the, the, the number of fish grows, they leave and they can be fished outside. So it, it's a mm. replenishment um, mechanism. If you think about these marine protected areas as uh, bank accounts, right, where you have the capital in your account and you just use the interest, that's what it is. Yeah, so or it's like you're making giant incubators. Protect... Mm -hmm, that's right. So, of course, the fishing industry is very, very powerful, and they don't like this idea, right? They, mm -hmm. they, they think that it's going to somehow cut into their revenue. But that's not true. So part of the story in Revia Gijedo is that the tuna fishing industry hasn't lost a penny. On the contrary, you know, they're sitting outside of the reserve, and they are harvesting the fish that leave the reserve. So they're actually making more money now and they're catching bigger fish.
Oh my gosh, that's amazing. And that that's why people need to know this stuff because I mean, obviously this is all news to me. And so it's great that you're doing these nonprofits and doing this incredible photography in order to And teach it's good all news, right? We need hope. I know, seriously, seriously. Well, I want to I want to look at your photography now. Let's look at some of that. So I've got your website here. But I want you to kind of direct me around a little bit and tell me some of the projects yeah. that you did that you would like to talk about. So first I want to say that um, this is my new website and uh, I'm incredibly lucky, Jeff, because it's so hard for our children and this generation to find their own passions, right? I'm sure you see this with Chase and mm -hmm. you try to encourage him to be an artist, but mm -hmm. it's hard because it's so difficult to get paid. So I get to hire my daughter, Juliana, who's so, she's an artist. She was born an artist. And she is, you know, she's part of that generation that feels so overwhelmed by what's happening to the planet and how difficult it is for young people to make a living. So I get to work with my daughter. It's amazing. She does a lot of the writing for my website. And her boyfriend, Adam, is the one who created my website for me. He manages it. And then my daughter-in-law, my, my son's girlfriend, does all the writing for my stories and my captions. She and I collaborate no on the writing. So. It's an extent. Oh my God. I love working with these children. They're so artistic and so compassionate and it's fun to hire my own family. So let me tell you about some of the projects. Okay. Young photographers like Chase will find out in their career that for the first few years of any professional photographer's career, you will create several bodies of work that may seem disjointed. Mm-hmm. I remember there were points in my career when I would look at what I, what I was doing and I was thinking, you know, this doesn't amount to anything. And then about 20 years into my career, I remember looking back and thinking, oh my gosh, I have a body of work mm -hmm. on the knowledge of indigenous people around the world. And one thing that is striking about spending time with indigenous people is that they are the last people alive today that still remember how the operating system of planet Earth works. For 10,000 years, indigenous people were the stewards of the land and the land thrived under their management. We had large herds of bison in North America and large herds of, you know, antelope in Africa. Because indigenous people abide by simple tenants. You take only what you need and you use everything you take. So there's no mindset of wastefulness or greed. The second tenant is if you take care of the land, the land will provide for you. And in colonial, you know, Western mindset, we rape and pillage the land, we exploit it and we discard it. So we need to remember how to go back to taking care of the land. And the third tenant is that the wealthiest man in the village is not the one who takes the most for himself, but the one who gives most to the community. Mm. And that is, you know, the principle of philanthropy that we all need to remember as well. So my entire body of work has centered around working with individuals and communities that are still stewarding the, the, the living resources of planet Earth. There's about 400 million indigenous people living on our planet today. They belong to about 5,000 different tribes, and they are the largest minority on planet Earth. So almost everywhere you go, you will find indigenous people that, you know, in the case of Mexico 600 years ago, in the case of Canada only 200 years ago, were dispossessed of their lands. And in so many places, they were forbidden from 
speaking their language and carrying out their rituals, traditions, and dances. Uh, they were forbidden from wearing their costumes and their regalia. And it's amazing to go back to some of these places and see how they're re, you know, they're reviving those traditions and they're reclaiming the land that once belonged to them. And so that's what my whole work is about, telling the story of the Hawaiian people and how they're recovering their language, their traditions, the, you know, the art of navigating across the Pacific without any instrument. It's called wayfinding. And they use the stars and the clues that the ocean gives them know where, where to go without a compass. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't want to get I off topic, but Hawaii. as you're talking, I, I, I listened to a TED talk that you did. And um, it was so moving how you talked about how happiness is really, or, or I'm sorry, material wealth, it really only provides, I think you said 10% of happiness. And, but, and these people, we as Westerners think of them as poor because they don't have material wealth. But considering that material wealth is so, is so insignificant to our happiness, it doesn't affect their happy, the lack of our quote unquote material wealth doesn't affect their happiness at all. And they feel completely content living off the land and living with what we would call little, right? Yeah, it was incredible That's TED right. Talk, by the way. That's right. Really interesting TED Talk. Oh, thank you, Jeff. It's it's something that, that you know, it, it struck me one day that economy for indigenous people doesn't start with money. It starts with human well-being. Mm. And that's how our economy should work. Except, you know, capitalism as we practice it today has completely left people and planet behind. And so how do we recover some of those tenants and that feeling of enoughness? Because if 10% of your happiness is your material well, you know, wealth, whatever stuff you own, what's the other 90%? You're an artist. You know that it comes from doing work that you love and that it's meaningful to you. It's about having deep and rich family and community relationships. It's about, you know, doing the things that you enjoy and that bring you happiness, ritual, tradition, you know, spending, you know, holidays with with your family. All of that stuff gives us pride and gives us a sense of belonging. And you look at the United States today, and we're supposed to be one of the wealthiest countries, but everybody's angry. Everybody's anxious. We're so polarized. We can't talk to each other anymore. We, we see our neighbors with suspicious, you know, where's the happiness in that? Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because I, I would take it even farther and say that the material wealth can make us miserable because then you find you're spending your whole life trying to protect and preserve it. And then you get billionaires that when they mm -hmm. go from 10 billion to 5 billion, they kill themselves, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. And I often look at those people, Jeff, and I wonder, you know, what are they going to spend all that money on? Right. Like how many billion dollar houses and airplanes do you need? And why are net not donating more of that money to, you know, people who need money? Think about it. On planet Earth, there's two boundaries that are non-negotiable. There's already 8 billion people living on planet Earth, and we have to share the resources with the biodiversity that we still have left. And the bottom boundary is what's known as a social foundation. And that is the right that every human should have to clean water and food and health and equity and peace and all of those things that are important to the well-being of humanity. But our current ca capitalist society has completely obliterated that bottom foundation. And I think 5 billion people lack at least one of those. 
uh, it's alarming. But the second boundary is equally alarming, and that's the ecological ceiling of the planet. So the carrying capacity of planet Earth to support life as we know it. And we've already obliterated that ecological ceiling as well. We have consumed so many of the resources of Earth, the fish, the trees, the water, and we're also causing climate change by burning fossil fuels, you know, acidification, deforestation, pollution, you, you name it. We've already broke through that ecological ceiling as well. How do we bring our planet back to balance? I think by subscribing to the idea of enoughness and by bringing back, you know, that mindset of, I don't know, the, the, the tenets of, of indigenous people of respect and you know, lack of greed and wastefulness, I guess. So, so at the, I don't want to get into politics, but I got to ask you this. So it almost seems like by what you're saying, that this can't be the, 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 the solution can't be regulation and laws and bills. It has to be information. It has to be changing people's mindset. Because it ha yeah. because you're you're and suggesting that people have to start caring differently about different things and prioritizing their lives differently, and you can't regulate that into people's minds. Would you agree with that? No, I mean I I agree with that, and I think about this very often. the The current economic paradigm that that we operate under, capitalism, yeah. um, was invented in the you know last century. Uh, I think it was in the 1930s that they came up with this neoliberal economic uh, theories. Mm -hmm. And that really has gone into a pickle, you know, a couple of ideas that are completely absurd. One is that the economy always has to grow, you know, infinitely. Every year it has to double, it has to grow. And if it doesn't grow, you know, all the politicians go crazy and people get fired. But in nature, any time that anything grows out of control like that, it's called cancer and it's not a good thing. Huh. You know, it's it's not meant to grow like that. Right. That's, I've never heard and, it put and, that and way. I think, yeah. And I think it's a, it's a mindset that's manufactured by a handful of people that profit enormously from those ideas. But capitalism was not meant to make a handful of people rich and leave everybody else behind. It was supposed to lift all of society, you know, through the creation of benefits and wealth. Right. But that's not how we practice it today. So, so I think we need to rethink capitalism to be more compassionate and more equitable and, you know, fair. Right. So I know you wouldn't say this, but to me, it seems like people like you and your husband and other, other conservation photographers, your job is really important in order to get people to change their outlook on capitalism and nature and the oceans and indigenous people. You must, I mean, obviously you yeah, see it that way. That's very important. Yeah. So, okay. So let's, let's yeah. um, talk a little bit about art. Okay. And um, a little bit about the creative side of your career. And we'll start with this photo. I mean, I'd love to talk shop a little bit and kind of get in your <laughs> head on how you think about composition, how you think about light, how you think about depth of field and those types of things. And maybe you can, and how you think about subject matter. Maybe you can kind of um, give us a little bit of a narrative of um, what was going on in your mind when you took, say, this photo. 
Yeah, you know, there's there's two photography is so big, right? It's almost like painting. You can take yeah. it into any direction you want. And I was lucky to work for National Geographic, where um, editorial photography is the work that's done, right? So every image needs to tell a little story, and you you know you go out on assignment and you come back with I don't know twelve to eighteen images that go into an article. So every image needs to do a lot of work to tell the story. And it's almost like a recipe where you have images that are a sense of place. That's usually like an aerial perspective that tells you where you are. And then you get some hero shots. You know, the, the hero of the story needs to be looking out into the sunset. And then you get some, you know, stories that are about the details. It's always really important to contextualize uh, the composition. Um, I follow something that I call the little people because they make, you know, they usually make the photograph so much more interesting. So you have your main character and then you have a small person somewhere in the background telling you more about what's happening. Mm. Um, the other side of my work, which is uh, where I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to turn 60 in the next four or five years. And I really want to start thinking about shifting from the very physical aspects of photography, which is to li live in a boat and <laughs> dive every day to being more artistic and, I, I've always considered myself an artist. Whenever I take photographs, I want to imagine them double page in a magazine. So you often yeah. see my subjects move to the side because there will be, you know, a page break there in the middle somewhere. And I always like to imagine my, my photograph printed really big and framed on somebody's wall, you know? So what kind of photograph would you want to wake up in the morning and look at every day? This one. So those are the, that's the... <laughs> That's kind of like the, the, the friction in my work, you know? So for the work with Sea Legacy, I do a lot of editorial photography that tells a story. For my work, which is becoming increasingly important as a fine artist, I really try to think about just, you know, the, the more conceptual negative space photographs that I really love. Yeah. That's, this is a gorgeous photograph. I mean, I can't take my eyes off of it. It's just so beautiful. And I love the wide angle perspective that you've got. It's, it's just gorgeous. Oh, thank you. Is there another one on here that you'd like to look at on this Hawaiian section? Oh, that's gorgeous well, too. Well, that's, that's the same girl. So, so one of the keys to being a good photographer is to really genuinely be curious and care about the people you're photographing. Hmm. So I always make a point of getting to know people as much as I can. So these young girls, they belong to a Hawaiian family that is a very traditional Hawaiian family, the De Sotos. Mm -hmm. Their dad is a big wave surfer, Dwayne De Soto, and he started a nonprofit organization in Hawaii to teach children about ocean safety. So it's a lot about, uh, you know, lifeguarding, but also, you know, basic tenets of being out in the water and also ocean conservation. It's called Nakamakai. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time with the DeSoto family just following them around because it's, there was a danger that the story was going to be just about surfing. Mm -hmm. And there's so much more in Hawaiian culture that is attached to the ocean. So um, the DeSoto family is really important to, to Hawaiian society in this part of Oahu. Hmm. And uh, yeah, those girls um, that you saw in that picture now, they're much older and they're surfing champions and you know, they're no doing amazing things. The great thing about indigenous people is they're all on social media. They're all on Facebook, so I can keep up with all of them. Oh, that's great. So from a technical standpoint, 
are you wh where do you stand with photography are you are you one that's that is just using the camera are you using lighting um um are you using reflectors are you using other things to compose these shots or are you one of those who is just like i'm just me the camera i'm going to shoot it as it is the way the camera sees it end of story where do you sit on that i think um i think to be a good photographer you have to be able to do it all uh, okay. whatever the situation calls for and uh, as an underwater photographer of course you're constrained because your camera is it's inside a housing a metal housing that keeps it dry but if you think about exposure for a second, you know, in this photograph, for example, I'm floating in the ocean with a camera housing and I have to shoot these girls um, with a dome that's wet. So you have to think about, you know, where the water is falling in that dome. And if this had been a split shot and you will see many of those um, over under shots in my in my body of work, you have to illuminate the what's happening in the bottom part. So you need strobes and you need to understand how to move light through water. It's complex. Underwater strobes. To say the least. Mm -hmm. No yeah, kidding. Yeah, they're heavy and they, mm -hmm. and of course the strobes are lighting all the scatter in the ocean, right? There's all these plankton and all these debris. So you have to be very careful on how to use them. Wow. When shooting above water, and if you look at any of my work, there's a lot of it that's happened with a flash. Um, I believe that the language of photography is one of light and you have to be able to make your own light. So why not learn how to use a flash properly? I generally just use one flash off camera and I use it in a setting that just gives it a little pop, you know? Is that what you did but here it, in order to compensate? In order to compensate for the sun there? No. What did you do to get them in, in no. get light on them? It's... um. It's the magic of Sony mirrorless cameras. You know, I expose so that there would be some detail in the ocean and then I open up the shadows in post-production. No kidding. It was almost impossible. Mm -hmm. I mean, photography, a lot of it is about post-production. And when you shoot raw files, you have so much information on the file that if it's properly exposed, you know, you can play a lot with the bringing the highlights down and opening up the shadows to balance better what you see. So you expose them dark and then and then brought them out. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah, the technology yeah, is getting And you'll incredible. see a lot of my photographs. Incredible. And we should use it, right? I mean, mm -hmm. think about underwater photography. Maybe five years ago, we didn't have the technology to really do underwater photography right because you could only push your ISO so much. 400 ISO was the limit. Now, the new mirrorless cameras and the new... Um, sensors that we have allow you to push the ISO to 16,000. So we can, you know, create the, the, the sense of light, even when there's no light yeah. underwater, which right. is so important. Right. All right. Let me pull up a different group. Um, Madagascar. That's a place where I would love to visit. So yeah, maybe you could tell me a little bit about this photo okay. shoot. Sure. So it's, uh, that was in 2010, a long time ago. And it's a very funny video somewhere where on the first week of this assignment, I fell in the water with all my equipment. Oh my gosh. Uh, I like, I know. So everything got wet and ruined. And the only lenses that I had left were my wide angle. So I had to shoot the whole thing with a 16 to 35 and with a fisheye. So if you look through the images, you'll notice that they're all wide angle photographs. But look it's kind of, it, they're cool though. <laughs> 
that <laughs> some of them turned out really well, but uh, it was it was really rough. Oh, so, that anyway. must that must have, that was an expensive fall. Oh, it was about twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, it was, you have to laugh it off, but that's exactly what happened. Oh my goodness! <laughs> this one here, I don't know what it is about it, but I just love the colors oh, and temperature. I mean, just this subtle green variation and the composition of the figures. And and you have this almost yeah like I would have been afraid to do this in a painting like it's almost a tangent but yet mm -hmm. it looks it works so well I don't know how you had the guts to do that right oh, there thank you Jeff <laughs> I do it a lot actually especially now over under photography I have to decide how much of the sky I'm going to include and mm -hmm. sometimes it's just a sliver yeah but I, I think oh. humans you know we naturally want to know where the sky is yeah. Yeah, and then this one also really cool. Is this a drone shot? No, that was taken from a bridge. Um, wow. You know, passing over the Rio, the, the, the Mandaray River, uh, which was uh, in severe drought. So Incredible. Yeah, this is before drones. This is 2010. But you know what I want to do with my career going forward? I mean, and I don't speak about this uh, in public a lot. <laughs> Oh, I'm glad Actually, to get it. Well, we are the undraped before, but... artist. <laughs> <laughs> undraped artist, exactly. <laughs> I am building a studio in my home in British Columbia because in the next five to 10 years, I would like to spend more time in the studio. And what I'm doing is I'm looking at my photographs, especially the black and whites, and printing them really big on this beautiful, rich cotton rag paper. Mm -hmm. And I want to paint on them, Jeff. I want to I wanna, awesome. use watercolors to create the sensation of color on images that are black and white. And I, I, I don't know if it's going to be successful or not, but I am so excited to do it. Uh, it will be. So you know I'll why it will be? It, it will be because people okay. like you don't fail. I mean, you obviously are, oh. you have so much grit. You, you'll, I mean, you'll be successful. I guarantee it. Um, that's Thank awesome. You. That's exciting. I can't wait to see I'm what you do. I know not, nothing about painting, and maybe that's a good thing. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. But, you know, it, it always does help to get a little advice from the pros. But um, I wish I could help you, but it sounds like you're going to be working in water-based media, and that's out of my league. I'm an oil painter. But I'm always happy to help. You're an oil if you, painter. Okay. Yeah, I'm an oil painter. But I'm always happy to help I'm if sure you need it. I'm sure there's somebody in your audience. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there is. We'll talk after. I'll line you up with people. I know. <laughs> we'll talk after. Okay. Um, so, all right. Let I want to look at that. Let's look at some of your black and white photography. Um, yeah. Well, actually, you know, before we do that, I got to look at this page. This is the Amazon, the correct? The indigenous people of the Amazon. Yeah. Yeah, and I can see that Adam and Juliana are starting to populate it with photographs. There's so many more pictures where these came from. So really. Um, it's a very rich body of work. Oh my gosh, Amazon. that's amazing. Amazing. It's amazing. What an opportunity to get to know these people. Is that just like, mm -hmm. I mean, that's got to make your life so fulfilling. It blows your mind, you know, how people survive with so little and they're so happy, so content, so competent. Um, they don't. They don't subscribe to the same anxiety that we do over stuff. Yeah. And, you know, life is perilous for them, but. Yeah. And they're, I mean, I think like, <laughs> like, 
like the average uh, Western mother would be like, oh my gosh, get in the shower before you catch a cold from all the germs all over your body, you know? And these kids are probably healthy as can be. They're like fish. They, uh, they learn how to swim before they learn how to walk because they live by the river, and, you know? Amazing. Yeah, drowning, crocodiles. <laughs> oh, and the, Yeah, I... I Tell me Love about him. this one, because this seems like it has a major implied narrative. What's happening in this photo? What were you trying to say? <laughs> Actually, I was spending time with the mothers. I, something interesting happened in the village that morning. And, you know, when you don't speak the language, uh, you miss a lot of the cues, right? But yeah, I was just sitting around, hanging out in the morning. And all of a sudden, I saw all the men just, you know, start marching very rapidly into the forest. And I realized that somebody uh, had found a, a herd of peccary, of wild pigs. And so I ran after them, and I couldn't catch up. But I, in the distance, I heard, uh, you know, two shots because they have bows and arrows and they're very good at shooting bows and arrows, but they also have these old uh, muskets. <laughs> no way. I was so worried that the bullets were going to hit me, right? Like I'm here. Hello. Before I was able to catch up to the men, they were already coming back with the wild pigs. They had already cut the bodies, the carcasses, and they were marching back to the village. And by the time I came back, the women were already cleaning the meat and they were going to cook it in these banana leaves uh, in a, fire pit in the ground like it happened so fast and the meat of these two animals that were killed you know was distributed among the entire village so i was photographing the mother when the little girl came to look at me Aww. and she was kind of like a, a mix of terrified of me and at the same time really curious so she would start crying but she wouldn't <laughs> leave <you know? laughs> she didn't know what she wanted to run or or I know. learn more yeah Wow. Very, very cute. Yeah. Now, is this paint the in the or tattoos? This no. paint, right? Ah, so this this is body paint. That's uh, an important tradition in the community because it really uh, fosters the social bonds. It takes a lot of time to paint a person's body. And they, even the youngest children sit so patiently for hours while they get painted. And the paint tells you a lot about who a person is, uh, Certain markings tell you if somebody belongs to certain families, if they're married, if they're mourning, you know, whatever it is. And the children tend to get painted like uh, wild animals. So they usually are like tapers or, you know, they could be like a monkey or a jaguar. The paint's made with a fruit from the forest called the genipat about the size of a baseball. And when you open it up, the flesh oxidizes and they mix it with charcoal to make this paint. Lasts mm. about two weeks. Two weeks, jeez, that's incredible. Yes, and then, and then they paint you again. You know, it's like you have to be painted. Wait, when you say it lasts two weeks, is that even when they get wet and stuff? Really, yeah, it, it creates a semi-permanent thing. It's it's amazing. Yeah, and it just slowly fades, and then they like, put it back on. No kidding! Wow. That's yeah, incredible. they have a second. A, sec a second paint that's made with a seed uh, called the urukum that's red, and they mix it with oil. And so that red paint washes away as soon as you put it in water. But the black one stays for a long time. Wow. So tell me about how these people, um, not just these people, but other indigenous people, have responded to you as a photographer and all of your technology. I mean, I imagine other photographers have been through many of these places, but... 
I mean, you know, you mentioned Actually, that... in, in some of these communities, no, you know, really? Brazil, for example, is very, very cautious with some of the more remote indigenous communities and they don't just let people walk in. And I would never just appear. Hello, I'm here. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Because in many places, white people are just not welcome. So I always go with um, either anthropologists or scientists that have been before who can introduce me to the community. You usually have to do a lot of the legwork of sitting around with the chief and with the, uh, you know, whoever his advisors are, the elders, and explain who you are, what you're doing. I usually bring examples of my work, and I, uh, especially with my fine art, I donate a lot of the money back to the communities, because otherwise, you know, we'd just be profiting from the right. likeness of indigenous people, right? Which is, seems so wrong. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, and you have to spend time because pe people are intimidated by the camera, right? In countries like Brazil, people are only in front of a camera when they take their uh, official ID. So they stand like this. Really? <laughs> I have hundreds of photographs of people standing very stiff in front of the camera. And the really? trick is to disappear, right? To make them forget that you're there so that they stop acting and they just start doing whatever they're doing. And it takes time. But they 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 become accustomed to it. I mean, they don't see it as just some sort of magic or something. No, usually in the beginning, you know, and then the, always, always the children want to see on your LED screen in the back, and they laugh and they want to touch the camera, and they usually end up with a lot of fingerprints in your front <laughs> element. You have to clean everything up. But then after a couple of days, people, you know, they just get bored of, of you hanging around with your cameras, and they forget that you're there. And wow. That that's when you start making your pictures, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I ask that because it's magic to me, and I'm and I'm I grew up with technology, so it's yeah. always made me curious. It's it's so many slippery slopes, you know, because photographers oftentimes come into indigenous communities and um, they will ask people to dress up, and I find that mm. so offensive, right? Because in indigenous people, like as I said, there's 400 million of them on the planet, and they live and walk amongst us. You know, they work at the Home Depot. So they don't look indigenous, but that's not how you measure indigenousness. Right. It's just not a way of dressing, right? It's a way of being. And, you know, I find it offensive when people are made to wear costume for a camera or when people are paid to pose for a camera. Right. So I tend not to pay people. I don't, I don't want to make it an exchange, but I do want to support the community and I do want to compensate people for their time. So I usually negotiate like a fee with a chief that benefits everybody. And you want to present them how they are, how they choose to be presented. You know, whatever they're doing, people often say, oh, but he's wearing a watch. And I'm like, why wouldn't he? <laughs> right. That's his culture now. It's He's been influenced by Western culture. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. You know, I, yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to change the way they are today. Right. All right. Let's, um, let's, so how can yeah. we see some of your underwater and, um, see, oh, right here, coastal um, BC, would this be a good one? Coastal BC, uh, some of it. Maybe yeah, we I think need they're to go just to beginning to, maybe go, maybe, yeah, or, yeah, go to my Instagram. You've got, so, yeah, yeah, a lot of my, oh my gosh. Yeah. Wealth of underwater. Oh my goodness. Sea so is this one of those ones you use strobes? And... <laughs> yep, you need strobes to light them because remember that as you start getting uh you know below ten feet, 
uh, all the red light and yellow light just gets sucked and be everything becomes blue. And if you don't use strobes to illuminate it, it looks muddy. Oftentimes I'm so surprised because I strobe something like a coral reef that to the naked eye just looks green and blue and the strobe will make it red and orange and yellow. And you're like, wow. Have you ever wondered? <laughs> not was that colorful. Have you ever wondered whether you're speaking of evolution or a creator? Either way, this is a question. Why are they so colorful if they're underwater where color can't be seen? From an evolutionary standpoint, where why? Can't. So you think so other animals can because, make out the difference? Hmm. You know, there's uh, there's whole conversations happening underwater that we are completely unaware of. So animals not only are communicating through sound and you know, the other day we woke up on, on our boat on the Sea Legacy One and we were in the coast of Baja California and what woke me up was a whale singing. And no I could hear kidding. it through the whole of the boat. And it was just like the eeriest thing to hear this amplification of the song. But whales, for example, humpbacks, the males start singing when, uh, when courtship begins. And they all learn the same song. You know, scientists have been recording these tunes. And every once in a while, a male from a different population will swim nearby and he will be singing a different song. And so all the males from these other population will pick up a couple of the strings, you know, and they'll incorporate it into their song. It's remarkable. It's a symphony happening underwater that we are not hearing. And the same is true of color. If you dive at night, bioluminescence can be overwhelming. It's all these creatures that uh, they have a chemical reaction between oxygen and an enzyme that creates a spark of light mm -hmm. and entire reefs will be illuminated and oh there are other God. creatures that incorporate that bioluminescence into their body so you'll see a, a jellyfish or a fish that you know there's a clam that it's almost like an electric light show and and it's just because we are very incomplete in terms of interpreting and understanding the natural world that we don't see it but you know what are they saying to each other only they know wow as you're talking, I think you've seen all this stuff up close. Most of us hardly get out of our own towns and you've woken up to whales mm -hmm. singing. Yeah. You must have developed a love for this planet that goes beyond what most of us can possibly understand. I think so. And I feel like my job is, you know, not to brag about the things that I get to see. Uh, but to remind us that even if you never get out of your town or even your apartment, you still need wild nature to survive on this planet. Yeah. 50% of the oxygen we breathe is exhaled by the ocean, by this invisible ecosystem made out of plankton, phytoplankton, that is no different than a rainforest, you know, bringing carbon dioxide into their tissues and exhaling oxygen that we need. So when you hear Elon Musk is building a billion dollars to decarbonize the atmosphere, well, look no further. The ocean has been doing it for millions of years. And all we need to do is to keep it alive. Hmm. Okay. Let's look at some more of these incredible photos here. Um, okay. Oh, so here's on Instagram. Scroll oh. down. Let me see. Oh, that's, oh, I love that. Oh photo. my gosh. I want to just look it's, at every single one. It's not a spectacular one. shot. Which that? I'm sorry. Which one? <laughs> Uh, the one of the one of the shark that was in the Galapagos. This one, like that, looks like a catfish here. 
No, that is a lemon. That's an energy shark. Sorry, that's in the Bahamas. Right, but uh, are you talking about this on... one here? Yeah, oh, that's like a Galapagos shark. You know, these are fat sharks, and they they eat everything from big fish to sea lions. And as you can see, we were in very shallow water, so the waves are breaking, and you kind of kind of hold on to something. And I could see that the shark was patrolling and coming back and forth every few minutes. And I was hiding under the fish. You know, there was six claws. <laughs> Are you scared out of your mind? Not really. I mean, as long as I can see the shark, I'm not scared at all. It's the ones that sneak in behind you that are scary. Well, yeah, but you don't know if but they're there or to... not. You don't know because they're sneaking in behind you. So <laughs> you, you should probably be scared. <laughs> you need to be paying attention for sure. Yeah. Incredible. So how, how do you focus yes. on composition? I mean, you're dealing with animals that aren't cooperating. So, and you got to get strobes in here and have your equipment as you put it on the, yeah. you, know, you have all the settings right on your camera. Um, uh, how do you balance yeah. Yeah, you, all that? All of that with all the complexity, complexities of diving, right? Because you are, um, you, you are beholden to whatever air you have in your scuba tank mm. and at most it's an hour an hour and a half at most you know you're really shallow and you're being carried away by the current and you're being pushed around by the waves oh my gosh you're sinking and you have to maintain your buoyancy and at the same time you know you're looking through the viewfinder and you're thinking oh composition f-stop you know shutter speed my strobe how much light it's a lot to manage so when young people ask me how to become underwater photographers, I usually tell them that you first need to become an extraordinarily competent water person. Oh, really? That's great advice. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. You have to be so comfortable in the water. Really? So did you, what did you do to become comfortable in the water? Did you learn that while doing photography or did you learn that to prepare to do <laughs> underwater photography? You know, I learned it in fisheries biology school. I It was compulsory to take a diving course. So I became certified as a diver in 1987. Wow. <laughs> You've been doing it a while. I know. <laughs> I, I have over 10,000 dives. I've been diving my whole life. And uh, I didn't pick up photography underwater until I met Paul because the the obstacle of getting the equipment was so expensive, right? So I borrowed one of his cameras and I started shooting and he was an incredible mentor in teaching me you know, how to manage the light and how to, you know, it's called, pers 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 what is it? Perspective, per pers perceptual narrowing. So when you are underwater and you start panicking, when you start getting, you know, carried away by the current or whatever, you know, you need to stay focused on what it is you need to do to survive. Hmm. Without losing your camera, right? Yeah. It's, do you get assist? Do you there's have nothing assistance? worse than come. Do you have people holding the strobes? We do have, um, no, the strobes are attached to the housing and you carry it with you. What? And there's some photographers, you know, that like to, they like to strap their camera to themselves. But if you were to pass out for whatever reason, that camera is negatively buoyant. So it would drag you down. So you don't want to be strapped to your camera. It's better to lose the camera than to uh, sink with it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's a lot to think about. It I can't is, even imagine. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. It's not an easy thing to do. So are for you, sure. when it's, you're down um, there for an hour and a half, are you just looking for one shot 
or I, I mean, is that, are you being conservative saying I've only got a limited amount of time. I can only do one shot. Or are you just like shooting off like crazy trying to get a thousand shots? If, if you are able to make one great shot in a dive, that's awesome. You know, you usually get in the water and whatever you thought was going to be there is usually gone, right? Like the fish have moved on. The shark is no longer there. We usually tend to dive many times in the same site. Once you start getting used to it, you see, oh, there's sea lions that are coming to this rock or whatever. But it's very difficult, right? And I like to dive in shallow water just because you get a little bit of the uh, natural light. And yeah. I don't like those dark pictures of the ocean. Um, I want it to be a happy place. But it's it's very difficult. So we just went to this enormous national park and we were photographing oceanic mantas. These animals, Jeff, they're five meters wide. I mean, they're just enormous. And they just come out of the blue and they're so gentle and so gracious. Five meters wide. Um, they don't come wide. very close. Yeah, they're from, from tip to tip. You know, they're enormous fins. Beautiful. Oh, my gosh. Um. Every once in a while, one of them will come close to you because if you try to chase it, almost any marine creature will just swim away. It's not easy to approach a, a shark or a manta ray. You have to wait for it to come close to you so that the light from the strobes, which falls out very quickly as it travels through water, so that the strobes will hit it, right? Yeah. It has to be so close. And how do they react to strobes? So, it's complex. They don't care, you know, if you look at this photograph, they are constantly seeing, you know, light hit the surface in many directions and mm. it looks like strobes underwater. They don't care. They don't. Okay. All right. No. Let's see. Terrestrial animals are more susceptible to flash. Oh, are they? No kidding. Okay. Here is a yeah, gorgeous they, they black and see. white. That is so beautiful. Oh, yeah. So that is in the Falkland Islands. That is a... Uh, King penguins is the northernmost distribution of these animals. And they're just so beautiful, so elegant. But you can see how dramatic the sky is and how much fun it would be to paint it pink or oh, even yeah. blue, right? But it would, look, it, it would look so galactic. It would look amazing. I can't wait to see what you do with that. You, I hope you, I hope you uh, keep, me, <laughs> keep me posted on your progress because it's going to be exciting to watch. I, uh, you know, I you know, tell Chase because I have made a career by creating um, goals. I, I do a lot of goal setting. Uh-huh. It, it, it really gives you this North Star of where what the, the milestones that you need to accomplish, right? And so I've set for myself as a milestone to take this new painted watercolor photographs to Art Basel next year. So we'll see. Have you, wait, so my understanding is you've already been in major art fairs. Is that right? And what, and yeah. didn't you just I recently have, yeah. have one? Yeah, I actually had three. I, uh, in, I, I was in Art Miami and in Art Basel and then in a couple of galleries in Miami that were exhibiting NFT art, which is new. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about NFTs? I mean, I don't want to get too into that, but just quickly, how do you feel about that? Is that, does that concept make a lot of sense to you? You know, I think as, it, it makes sense uh, from the creator standpoint and being able to enter our work into the blockchain, right? To establish authorship and uh, authenticity. Yeah. Because now we have AI machines that can actually make a photograph that of something that never existed so how do you know that this was actually in the real world so i think yeah 
authenticity and entering this into the blockchain is important. I also like the mindset of Web3 of actually paying creators for the work that we do. Yeah. Uh, compensation, right? Yeah. Uh, proper compensation. And then the, the other aspect of it is I think it's a great way of raising money for the work that I do. But of course, we're all talking about the environmental concerns of all of these technology, the mining, the blockchain. But, you know, do you remember ever hearing when the Model 3 was first invented, Henry Ford, there were highways. So we are at the beginning of this new technology and hopefully it will turn into something good for the planet and for creators. Yeah, that first thing that you said about uh, I mean, you suggested it's like a digital signature for our art. I'm not, I like that. I haven't heard that argument before. That makes a lot of sense. Oh, it's, um, it's a smart contract, right? It says yeah. this painting was made by Jeff. And every time that the person who now owns it, sells it, you know, Jeff will get 10% royalty. Right. So all of those things are written into a smart contract that is open source so everybody can see it. So you as a creator don't lose control over your work. Yeah, no, I like that. Okay, I've been staring at this. I mm -hmm. have to hear about this one. This is mind blowing. <laughs> How did this happen? Oh, that's happen? a Paul Nicklin photograph. Oh, this isn't one of yours? <laughs> Paul and I spend, no, that's me in the photograph. I'm that's you in the photo. Okay, so that's, that's, that's me, worthy yeah. of conversation anyway. You were this, is this a sperm whale? It's a sperm whale. These animals, um, you know, they're all over the ocean. They're Moby Dick, if you ever read that book. Yeah. And um, they're the largest carnivore who has ever lived on our planet. They eat squid. They, they dive incredibly deep to feed on giant squid. And for the most part, um, you know, they, they tend to move a lot. But there's a population that lives just off the coast of Dominica and the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And it's a matriarchal community of whales. So when the males become teenagers, they get kicked off the pod and only the females stay. So you have the big matriarch and then all the aunties and the sisters. And it's mostly female whales. They're amazing. Mm. And they, they travel as a pod to protect the young ones from predators like orca and pilot whales. They get attacked a lot. And when they sleep... You'll see the matriarch, you know, they're traveling horizontally and then all of a sudden she'll sit vertically like this and she will compel the entire pod to do the same. So all the whales sleep at the same time and they float like cigarettes, like vertical, like this, carried oh, by the current. that's what they're And doing. every once in a while, they're asleep. You'll what? see them, you know, a little burst of like a snore or a fart. <laughs> <laughs> and every once in a while, of course, they need to come up to the surface and breathe again, and they just go up and come back down and fall asleep again. Was their Amazing. head just extra buoyant or something? Is that why that happens? Yeah, so if you remember Moby Dick, I mean, the whaling, the whalers were after the substance that's in their head. They have this melon of a head, right? And inside is a substance called the spermaceti, which is what uh, they used to use to light lamps mm. in the old days it's like an oily it's substance oil, but yeah. it's also the substance that allows them to dive so deep and it's that spermaceti that's so valuable today the spermaceti is used as a, as a scent fixer in very expensive perfumes so it's really? still very valuable so if you're ever in the beach and you find something that looks like amber but it's this big it's probably spermaceti and you're now a millionaire so 
No kidding. So these things can die and the chunk of spermaceti can float away from the corpse. No kidding. Yeah. And people, you know, there's people who specialize on finding spermaceti on the beach, but whales like these ones, they're like uh, gardeners in the ocean because they dive so deep to feed in the bottom of the sea and they bring up to the surface minerals that are important for phytoplankton. So when they poop, they fertilize the plankton community, which is absorbing the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Hmm. So whales are absolutely essential to the health of our planet. And right now, there is not a single currency or a single economy that gives any value to whales. You will never find it in the books of any country. You know, we have 2,000 whales. They're worth $2 million each. We need to incorporate those values into our accounting for our countries. Because having whales makes you very, very wealthy. Wow. You need to keep them alive. So I'm so impressed with your knowledge about all the animals we've talked about. How much of this knowledge has come from your exposure to them as a photographer? And how much did it has it come from your study in university? Well, it started when I was a child, right? Um, my brother was the one that was you know that was given the National Geographic subscription and the books about Jacques Cousteau, but I stole all of those books and yeah to read them <laughs> right when nobody was looking i've been I've been fascinated by this my whole life because I often think you know that if if we think about planet Earth as a spaceship that's carrying us through the universe, if you were to open the hood, it would all be salt water that's the engine of life on earth. Mm -hmm. We don't understand it very well. So the more we know about it, the the better equipped we are to maintain our spaceship on course. Yeah. Okay, let's look at a few more. Um, that Well, you'll have to tell Paul Nicklin that that is an amazing photo. That's just gorgeous. <laughs> okay, here's another one yes. that is like that shark one, but very different because it's a human and different composition. But it's just, I love this effect of being in shallow waters with a wide angle. It's really nice, beautiful. Yeah. So tell me about this. What's this little boy well, all about? Well, well, that's, that is a French Polynesia in the Tuamotus, which is a series of islands that includes uh, places with beautiful names like Bora Bora, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Tahiti. And like I said, three and a half billion people live close to the ocean and depend on an ocean economy for fishing, for tourism, all these things. So this is when I started thinking, you know, that I could bring my, passion for indigenous people and ocean together into a series of photographs that show humanity from the ocean perspective. Mm. So that's kind of like what I'm starting to do now. It's difficult. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I would imagine it's really frustrating because I, I expect there are days when you go diving, you come back with nothing. You know, it's a career made out of failure. 99% of the time we come up with nothing. Really? 99% like, of the time? I mean, I realize you might, oh, are you exaggerating so or is you know? that real? <laughs> no, no. I have hard drives and hard drives full of photographs that will never be seen because they're terrible. Um, it's very difficult for everything to come together, right? The light, the fish, the person, the strobes, you know, everything come together. It's amazingly hard. So really... Part of being a photographer then, if you've got all those photos that will never be seen, part of being a photographer, a good photographer, is just the ability to choose what's good and yeah, what's to be not. be a editor. 
Yeah, that's what it sounds like. To be, yeah, I mean, people will only remember you for your worst photographs. <laughs> They'll say, right. well, that is crap. So you want to show them just the good stuff. Right, right. Yeah, as a painter, that's one of the frustrations as a painter because it's the same. You don't want to show people your garbage. Um, but it's less about editing because you kind of have to edit in advance to get to the finished product, you know. But I have noticed that. Um, and as you go, right? And as you go, yeah, you edit as you go. It's not so much like I'll throw out 10 and keep one. It's constantly changing it, you know, as you go till you get to the end. So it's do a little bit different. Do you have an idea in your, in your head when you start painting? Oh, yeah, you do, but it never works out. Like? Yeah, but it never works out. <laughs> Right. So, so that's where our editing is, right? At least for me, I can't speak for all painters, but, um, that's what I have an original idea, but then by the time it's done, it, it rarely looks like the original idea. So the editing is sort yeah. of, um, in happening as you go. Are you, are you, are you hard on yourself? You know, cause I judge my work so harshly. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I want to hear more about that. Yes, we all are. I mean, don't you think any good artist is hard on themselves? Yeah, brutally hard. And what ends up happening is, like I said, you know, I have hard drives and hard drives that are so frustrating because I'm not happy with what I shot. But then, you know, I'll say, you know, three months later, I'll go, I'm going to take a look again. And then I'm like, damn, I'm good. You know, I, I hadn't realized. <laughs> That's that I funny. I go do the same thing. I'll see a painting in a client's home 10 years later and go, oh, I guess I wasn't too bad after all. But I hated it when I got rid of it. <laughs> look at me. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. We need that distance to oh, see ourselves cringe. from somebody else's perspective. And you got to kind of be, you got to step away a bit, I think. That's so true. And then I live with Paul Nicklin and he's a gifted photographer, right? So it's, it's important for me not to compare myself to Paul and know that I do something very, very differently because otherwise I'd be just, you know, my wrist would be open. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I know. So good. I wonder so that brilliant. when artists marry each other. <laughs> Especially when you're doing the same medium, how difficult is that? I mean, is it, how do you balance that when you see Paul having success? Um, um, you know, he's so he's such an amazing husband, and he's so supportive of of my art uh, that he's very happy whenever I have success, and I'm happy for him as well. And and we do very different things, right? He's very much into intimate wildlife, and I like the humanity aspect of it. So we have different specialties and we exhibit together a lot. Yeah. So uh, any art show will have some of Paul's, Paul's art and some of mine. And next year, we both have, for the first time, solo shows in museums, which is kind of like the Everest for photographers, for fine art photographers and painters. to be shown in a museum. Yeah, congratulations. And painters, yeah. Which museum? Yeah. It's called the Galleria d'Italia in Torino, and I am so intimidated, Jeff. I, I mean, I feel like a like an amateur photographer once again oh, to man. have a show that is just me, and it's three floors in this museum. And three I mean, I'm floors. Like, do, do I have to work? You well, take it yeah. from one of your one of your diehard fans. You absolutely are worthy of that. You are absolutely worthy of it. But I get what you're oh, saying. Gosh. Like you never feel worthy of of your success. Like, do you even have enough work to fill three full floors? You know, and they're so naive about photography. So they said, well, we, we would like to show 200 original new pieces. New? <laughs> new. Like, <laughs> you know, like, can you imagine if they ask you to do that? Like, 
Like yeah. I can produce maybe five extraordinary pieces in, in a year, but wait, yeah, so wait, at 99% success, a, a failure rate, right? Producing 200, yeah. that's like a lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> that's insane. Exactly. So I had to kind of like, um, I have to have a diva moment and I had to throw a tantrum and I had to say, I'm very insulted that you would not consider my previous work. You know, I want this to be yeah, a retrospective. That's it. That's 20, I have 20 years doing, you know, serious photography. And if I have, Hundred pieces, I'd be lucky. And the more of a diva you can be, the more they'll respect you as an artist because that's the stereotype. So just embrace it. <laughs> that's, that's, I know. I'm, oh, I, man. I don't like it, but but yeah. So I, this year I'm planning. I mean, in addition to the work that I'm doing for Sea Legacy in Mexico, and and I think I just came up with a, a couple of nice shots from these giant manta rays that were so beautiful. Um, I'm going to the Omo Valley of Ethiopia to photograph very remote uh, indigenous communities that are suffering horrendous famine, but they're still, you know, enoughness. They're still beautifully living their lives in tradition. So I want to see it. And then I'm going to go to the highlands of Papua New Guinea to the cultural show. Called, it's known as the Sing Sing of Mount Hagen. And wow. they dress themselves up and they, they perform and it's going to be amazing. And then I'm going to Mexico to do the Day of the Dead. So, What a exciting. life. I realize I don't, I don't want to make light of what you do. I realize your life is a lot of work, a lot of headache, a lot of stress. But the, the, but the fact that you have seen so much has got to feel like such a blessing too. If anything, it just really compels me to say we live on a beautiful planet. It's yeah. worth protecting it. Yeah. We shouldn't let, you know, things that are magical just disappear. Yeah. And it's not like you didn't do the work to be able to see the whole world, right? And I, I heard on your on your uh, TED Talk also that you've been to, I think you said, a hundred different countries in on all of the continents. Or has that grown since then? Uh, Oh my God, I think we're 130, 131. But, you know, it, like traveling was glamorous when I first started traveling many years ago. Yeah. Now I just, like, I get like PTSD when I get to the airport and I just hate airplanes. I wondered and that. Airports and I, yeah, I just want to be in my own bed. Even a nice hotel room like this gets old after a day or two. Is that why, is that part of the reason why you're motivated to start working in the studio and, and start painting on your photos? Yeah, I want to stay home. That's exactly what it is. I want to commute from the kitchen to my studio, close the door and lock myself with my art for hours and hours and hours. And that's what I dream about. Oh, you're if I mean, you're already in major shows, too. I just can't wait to see when you have one of these photo painted photographs in one of these great shows. Yeah, it's it's that's oh my awesome. God, I hope I don't screw it up. Jeff. You won't. Screw it up. <laughs> no, no, I take it back. You will screw up a bunch of them. We all do. But then you'll do some incredible Tell stuff. Tell me something. Right? So, so how how expensive is it to experiment? Right. I mean, oh, my the, gosh. The Are you kidding? Painting is so much cheaper than photography. I mean, you have so much expensive equipment. All you need is a few brushes and some paint. You're, this is nothing. Yeah. Get used to having much, a much I cheaper wait. lifestyle. I'm not saying it's cheap. For those who have never done uh, either, it's an investment. But when you're used to carrying around $20,000 worth of equipment just on your backpack, uh, that's not how it yeah. is for us. There's... <laughs> You know, but like any career, you can spend wait. as much as you want to spend. I mean, you obviously, even as a painter, can buy a lot of stuff. But 
Um, you can also, of course, yeah, cheap. I'm a minimalist at heart. You yeah. know, I don't like, I don't like clutter. So I, I think, you know, whatever is the, the smallest amount of stuff that I travel with, or I really can't wait for the studio. I, my mother was a painter, so I, I know how excited she always was when something was finally finished and framed. Man, I'm so excited for you. You're going to kill it in the painting field. You've already killed it in the photography field and the conservation field. It's going to be great. Thank so, you, Jeff. It's, it's good to have friends like you so encouraging. <laughs> well, it's easy to be encouraging when you've got that kind of talent. So let me, let's, I want to end it with you by asking you a question I ask everybody. And you've already kind of given, you've already given a lot of advice, which I really appreciate. Um, but if you could give one piece of advice to someone like Chase who wants to have your career, mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah. what would it be? Well, as an artist, you know that it's going to be a long journey, so don't expect immediate results. It's not a, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Mm -hmm. And it really helps to identify what you're passionate about. So I was very lucky when I was a young person because somebody talked to me about uh, finding my ikigai. And ikigai is a Japanese concept that means the purpose of your life. Because when you find the purpose of your life, you don't get up to work. You get up to fulfill your reason for being on planet Earth. And the way that you find your ikigai is by uh, finding the confluence of four things. The thing that you love, which is the thing that you're good at, which is the thing that gets you paid, very importantly. But the fourth one is the most difficult one, and that has to be the thing that the planet needs. And when you find a way for your work to, you know, have that middle confluence point, then you're all set. You'll never work a day in your life. That's such great advice. And I've never had advice, advice even close to that. So that's, that's awesome. I appreciate but that. But I bet you found your Reiki guy, Jeff. I bet I, you've already. Would you say it's a lifetime pursuit in a way? Like, does, does, it, does it evolve? Yeah, totally. It's a lifetime pursuit, right? You're always trying to find, to do more of what you like, to do more of what's meaningful, to do more of what pays well. I mean, yeah. we're always trying to balance these four things. But there are people that go through their entire lives without finding a way to give back, Yeah, to make the planet a better place, either by serving others, by serving nature, by serving humanity. Yeah, I've found it. I've found it a few times. That's why I ask. And but I'm always looking to to expand it, I, I think. Because it's never good enough. You always want to do better yeah. and do more. So, even just giving a forum to artists is already making the planet a better place. So, thank you, Jeff. I'm very excited by this conversation and I'm grateful that I got a chance to meet you. Oh, it's such an honor to have you. I mean, you are an incredible photographer and, and you're doing so much for our planet. It's, I, I feel honored to know you. So, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to the Undraped Artist Podcast. If you enjoyed it, subscribe.